Thank you, brother, for leading in worship. I enjoyed that. There are several popular Christian worship songs that uh, Karen and I love very much, um, but we don't sing them here. Um, for good reason. Um, there's some theological issues with some of them. And, uh, you know, truth matters more than a good chorus and a catchy beat. Amen? And you got, you got a lot of really talented Christian songwriters who are terrible theologians. Uh, and if you listen to much Christian music, if you're biblically literate, you understand, there's just sometimes a lot of problems with some of the lyrics. One of the songs that popped into my head as I was studying the, the, uh, the chapter tonight, John 14, particularly the last few verses, um, is a song that we don't sing. I think we may have started to sing it. We changed some words. <laughs> but uh, above all, let me just read the chorus to you. We do sing that. We change the words. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's legal, but you know, you do what you have to do. Um, the course goes like this. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose, trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Now, uh, it's a sign of the times. Your average church member has no clue what's wrong with those words. Um, this is a huge problem in much of the modern church that we don't immediately hear, and again, we don't all have to be seminary students, that's not what I'm saying, but that we don't hear error. We just don't hear it like we ought to many times. So, again, this is a, an epidemic in the, uh, the modern church. It's a presupposition that much of the modern church has ascribed to. It's a presupposition that we bring to church. It's a presupposition that we bring to the Bible. You know, it's one thing you learn in seminary. You've got to set aside all your presuppositions. You come to the text and let the text be what the text is. And the text is a first century text, New Testament, okay? And you let it, you've got to almost put yourself in the first century. What did the, what did the men and women who heard Jesus, what did they hear him say? Not what an American heard him say, or a Nigerian heard him say, or an Italian heard him say, 21st century. What did the first century Jew hear Jesus say? The presupposition we bring is, it's pretty much all about me. Right? Yeah, God is supposed to save me, and then He's supposed to make me happy. And He's supposed to give me all the stuff I think I want. That's what Christianity has devolved into in many places in the world. God is obliged to save me, which biblically we understand He's not. And then God should make me happy, which we understand God has you know, much greater designs than simply making you temporally happy. About... Five months ago now, we were in John 11. I love John 11. If you don't know John 11, you have to study John 11. But Lazarus had fallen ill. Martha and Mary sent word to Jesus. 
And what did Jesus do? Does anybody remember? Why did He... Jesus waited two days. Why did He wait? Does anybody remember that? It'll give you some insight into the problem I have with the chorus of above all. Jesus said this illness is to the glory of God. Now, I'm sure everyone standing around Him had no clue what He was talking about. Right? This illness is for the glory of God. You may remember also in John chapter 9, there was a man born blind and the disciples asked Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Yeah, you're right. How did he sin? He was in the womb. They had a doctrine of prenatal sin. First century Jews did. What did Jesus say in that situation? Do you remember? This man has been born blind that the power of God may be seen in him. What two lessons do what what lesson what one lesson do we take away from those two texts? Oh, guess what? It's not about you, it's about God. It's about God and what God wants to do in you and through you. Right? That's what it's about. Some of you think the universe you know, revolves around you. Some of you still think that. I'm, I'm going to lovingly say to you, that's not accurate. The, the universe doesn't revolve around you. It revolves around its Maker. His Maker, the, uh, the Maker of the universe, His name is Christ. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. Amen? That's what it's about. It's about the glory of God, beloved. That's what... It is about... You know, I was just thinking about the, La- the, the Lazarus thing. Last time you were gravely ill or someone in, that you knew or loved, was the first thought you had, this is for the glory of God? Was that your first thought? Was it your second thought? Did it even enter your mind that what has come into my life is about God It's not about me preeminently. It's about God. You know, as Christians, we're supposed to learn to think like this. You don't run into very many who do think like this. It's biblical to think like this, but most professing Christians do not. So if you listen to the teaching that emanates from many pulpits these days, you realize that something has gone awry. The catchphrase that we adopted in, back in John 11 was, it's not about you. You know, if, if you don't hear me say anything else tonight, if you can never forget, it's not about you. It's about God. The cosmos exists and you're in it that God may be glorified. So there's a ton of theology there, <laughs> right? So how are you going to live that out? If that's true, if what I just said is true, and it is biblically true, how are you going to incarnate that in your marriage and in your career and in your internet surfing and whatever else you may do? Again, much of the modern preaching today is 
I expect God to save me. Yes, I'll pray my prayer. I'll do my ordinance. I'll attend church when it's not too inconvenient. I understand that's what it means to be a Christian, at least in this century. That's, I'll do that. And then I expect God to make me really happy. And let me ask you this. What happens when the storm comes and the trial comes and the hard thing comes and we're not happy circumstantially anymore? What happens? What, what's the first thing that comes out of people's mouths? You know, obviously in my job I hear this all the time. Because we're not biblically literate, the first thing that comes out of our mouths is, Why God? Why God? We, we take our two and a half pounds of gray matter and we want to, you know, interrogate infinite mind. Does anybody see a flaw in that idea? We want to question God. Well, God, You're supposed to save me and then You're supposed to make me happy. You're my genie in a bottle. You're my hay boy. You're supposed to make me healthy, wealthy, and prosperous according to the guy on the internet. <laughs> You'll notice these guys almost never refer to a text. If they do refer to a text, they take it out of context. So this is a huge problem in the modern church. This man-centeredness, this self-absorption, this being in love with the reflection in the mirror more than we are in love with the One who created us. And so, ICM has always been radically God-centered. Always. You know, it's like a personal crusade of mine. If anybody comes through this church and hangs around very long, my goal is to make sure they stop looking at that reflection in the mirror and loving it supremely, and they start looking into the Word of God and loving God supremely. You want to talk about being a, having a happy life? <laughs> Walk with God. Walk with God. And you will love Him so much that when it gets hard, when the trial comes, you won't say why. You don't need to say why. You know Him. You know Romans 8.28 is true every day. You don't, it's a useless question. That's right, Andrew. It's a useless question. Andrew knows what I'm talking about. So, now you know the error in the course, right? How did it go? Like a rose trampled on the ground... You took the fall and thought of what? Me above all. Wrong. Jesus Christ is never thinking of you above all. Who is Jesus Christ thinking about? We're going to see, we saw it in the text. You heard me read it. The last couple of verses of the text. I've come that the world will know that I love my Father and I keep His Word because I love my Father. And when He's on the cross, He's loving His Father supremely and preeminently. Yes, He loves His people too. 
but don't get yourself in the wrong place. It's not about you. I can say that in, in one sentence and then say in the next, oh, but God died for you. This is Christianity. It ain't about you, but God died for you. Yeah. Think about that. You know, if you actually believe that, it doesn't need to be about you, right? <laughs> it doesn't need to all be about you. That's enough for me that God loved me. That's enough for me forever. So tonight we'll close out John 14. You know the context. For those of you who have not been here, uh, it's a night before the cross. Jesus is comforting His disciples. And He's making all of these mammoth promises to them. Um, just staggering promises. He says it's going to get hard, but let not your heart be troubled. He, he said it early in John 14. He's going to say it again tonight. I'm God. You belong to Me. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm taking you to heaven. I'll hear your prayer. I'll answer your prayer according to my will. I'll give you the Holy Spirit and He will indwell you and teach you all things. Again, as I said last week, we parked on um, John 14.21. If, if you weren't here, I would invite you to go to the podcast site and listen to the sermon. It's, it's one of the most important things I've ever learned as a Christian. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I, Jesus says, I will disclose myself to you. So, what's the takeaway? In obedience, we get God. It's awesome. I can tell you it's true. Most of you know that it's true as well. So, I'll pick up here at verse 22. I referenced it last week. Judas, not a scared. He, said, he says, Lord... Uh, what has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us but not to the world? It's a reference back to verse 17 where he says that the Spirit of truth will come and the world cannot receive Him, but the people of God will receive Him. There's a ton of theology here. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, when we get to John 17, we'll develop the theology more fully about the, the love that Christ has for His own, for the, for the believer as opposed to the world. There's a, there's a huge theological distinction there. And we'll talk about that in John 17. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered and said to him, if, you, if anyone loves Me, he will keep My Word and My Father will love him and we will come to Him and make our abode with Him. It's a mirror image of verse 21 that we talked about uh, at length last week, so I won't go into uh, great detail there. Verse 24, And he who does not love Me, this is just saying it in the negative, he who does not love Me does not keep My Word. So, you know, you, you can examine your heart right now. Are you a Christian or not? I'm not talking about being a church member. I'm asking you, are you a Christian? It's right there. John 14, 21. John 14, 22. John 14, 23. If you love Me, you keep My commandments. That's it! That's it! These are the red words! <laughs> Do you love Him? Do you keep His commandments? You're a Christian! We're not talking about perfection. None of us are perfect. 
We still fight. We're in that sin fight, that Romans 7 sin fight. But I love Him. And when I roll out of bed in the morning, I'm aiming at obeying Jesus Christ. This is Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. The love, the test for true love for God is always the same. I'm not asking you, and God's not going to ask you, you know, He's not going to ask you, were you a member of the church and did you do an ordinance and did you attend when it wasn't too inconvenient? God's never going to have that conversation with you. Who do you love? Who do you obey? That is... Christianity. Let me finish verse 20. Did I finish it? And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Jesus was always about the Father's business, right? It's like you. <laughs> right? You're a Christian. You're always about you know, God's business. I'm here to do God's business. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. God gives you all of these skills and resources and aptitudes and talents and abilities. You have all this stuff God gave to you. This is your talent. This is your minah. And God says, you go do business. What does that mean? Make Jesus famous in the world with what I gave you. That's what it means. Right? In your orbit. You make Jesus famous in your orbit with what I have given you. So it's in the life. It's in the life. If it's real, it, it is in the life. There is no middle place to be with Christ. There's no comfortable, lukewarm, religious middle ground. It does not exist. Just read your New Testament. It does not exist. We are either all in or we are not in. Beloved, it's just, it's just the Bible. God could not be more clear. Verses 25 and 26 these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is coming. Jesus has already talked about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is coming. I think over in uh, John 16, Jesus will say, it's good that I go. Why is it good that Jesus go? Why is it good for the disciples? Why is it good for you? The Spirit of God's coming. This is a brand new thing, right? This is a new covenant thing. This didn't happen in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon or was with a man or a woman. What happens in the New Testament? What's the New Testament teaching? He is in you. The third member of the Trinity indwells you. I don't know how I can get any bigger than that. How, how can you legitimately complain against God about anything going on in your life? <laughs> when he, what, wait, the second member of the Trinity, okay, the first member of the Trinity uh, commanded the second to come and save you. The second bled out for you. The third indwells you. And you have a complaint against God? Seriously? Beloved, we're not thinking properly. If we think we have any legitimate complaint against God, He has, as I think we said last week, He has given you everything you need to be a disciple. And that's what you're called to be. 
right? <laughs> That's what you and I are called to be. And I love this. This is a promise that we'll have a, a reliable New Testament. We'll actually have the, the, the very true red words of Jesus. How do we know? Jesus says, hey, the Holy Spirit will bring to your recall all that I said. There's a promise there. You'll have, a, you'll have an accurate New Testament. You know, I know that many people in the Bible say, well, many people in the world say, well, they, they cast aspersions on the Bible. Well, it can't be accurate. Well, it was written by so many people. And, you know, there's errors in it and all of this garbage. And really, all of Christianity comes down to your view of the Bible. Actually, your view of the Bible is a reflection of your view of God. If you don't think God is competent enough to reveal Himself, record it, and deliver it to you, then I don't know what kind of pathetic God you believe in, but it's not the biblical one. Our God is God. He does whatever He pleases in heaven and earth. And He can reveal Himself through men. He can record it. He can combine it and put it together for you. This is a small thing for God to do. It's, it's, it always stuns me, you know. Obviously, I understand that the unbelievers cast aspersions on the Bible. What stuns me is people who call themselves Christians, who, you know, who, who will take some and leave some and say that the Bible has some error, has some truth and some error. I mean, I, I, I just, it's astonishing, really. Here's a promise from Jesus. You'll remember my words. You'll remember them accurately. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So, I give you my peace. Those of you who are Christians, those of you who are real Christians, you understand. <laughs> I've had major trauma in my life since I was 28. I was converted at 28. I've had, I've had, serious, I've had serious trauma. And I've had nights when I couldn't cry anymore. But God is with me and I have His peace. Those of you who are Christians and you've lived any number of years, you understand. God's peace, in fact, does surpass all understanding. We have peace about the past. All my sin is gone as far as the east is from the west. I have peace about the present. I am anxious for nothing. And if I'm anxious for something, you're the man. Plus a fashion plate. If uh, I was saying something good there, and now I, I don't know what, this is what happens when you're my age. If I'm anxious for, for something, I, I haven't read my Bible or I haven't believed it. What does Jesus, what, what does Apostle Paul say? Pray! Pray! Be anxious for nothing. Bring it to God. Give it to God, right? This is what this is what we do. And I, 
I have peace about the future. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Amen? Nothing can separate I have peace. I have peace. Yesterday, now, and tomorrow, I have peace. It's the peace of God. Jesus says, I give you my peace. Beloved, do you have it? It's one of the hallmarks of true conversion. I do have the peace of God in my heart. If the whole world comes crashing down, my God is sovereign. And I trust what He's doing. I trust what my God is doing. Verse 28, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father... <clears throat> is greater than I. So, I think there are several meanings here when Jesus says, He says, um, I will come to you. Several meanings, I think. One is, obviously, after the resurrection, Jesus will come to His men. He'll come back from death. He also comes to us in prayer. The promise He gave earlier in the chapter, I will come an answer. He comes to us through the Spirit of God that He just promised us. He comes to us through the Word of God that He will give through the Spirit of God, through His apostles. He comes to, you know, this is the normative way that the true believer encounters God. You know, we don't stare at our navel and hear voices. Some of you may stare at your navel, but I would counsel against it. It's wasted time. It would be far better for you to be in the Word of God. God speaks to His people in His Word. Jesus comes to... Jesus saved me in, through His Word. It's how He came to me. I bet that's true for some of you as well. And ultimately, obviously, <clears throat> He'll come for us in death, in our own death. We will meet Him. He will come for us. And of course, at the end of the age, He will come. It's one thing I fell in love with about God when I was first converted. I was immediately went into a men's Bible study. It's called Bible Study Fellowship. Some of you will have heard of it. And my first study was Genesis, and God just keeps coming to Abraham. He just keeps coming. He just never stops coming to Abraham. And I love this. I fell in love with this immediately, right? I thought, wow, <laughs> that's the way I want it to be in my life. Oh, but, but Abraham did something that uh, God came to him and then Abraham, what was it God, what was it Abraham did? Oh, he obeyed God. It's John 14, 21. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what? I'll just keep coming to you. Beloved, this is biblical Christianity. Don't settle for anything less. This is biblical Christianity. I love this about God. He just never stops coming to His people. As one of my old pastors used to say, <clears throat> you get as much of God as you want. That's a big statement. How much do you want? If you want Him, you'll be obeying Him. 
your life, you don't have to say it. Your life already says to God and everyone around you who you love supremely. You don't have to actually say the words. It's in your life. It is in your life. Jesus said, if you loved me, you'd rejoice for me. What's He talking about? Because I go to the Father. What's He talking about? He says, man, I'm about done with this. You know, you know the famous verse, uh, Philippians 2, 6-11. Although He existed in the form of God, He emptied Himself, being found in the appearance of man, humbled Himself to the point of death upon a cross. Therefore God highly exalted Him, before whom every uh, knee should bow and every tongue should confess. Jesus saying, hey, I'm just about finished with this part of the project, Right? And if you love me, you'd be happy. I'm going back to glory. I'm going back to my Father. And I, I was listening to John MacArthur preach on this text, and he said a great thing. He said, you know, these guys, these guys are looking at the cross from the other side of the cross, right? You, it's easy for us. We're, we're, looking from, from, we're, we're looking at it from a historical perspective. It's easy for us. There's still a lot of mystery for these guys. So I don't want to be too hard on them. But Jesus said, if you really understood, you would be happy because my glory is your joy. John 11. Lazarus died. Jesus said, this is for the glory of God. But what else happened? Does anybody remember at the end of the chapter? There was glory for God and there was what? Joy for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Here's the, here's the thing you need to understand about the Bible. <clears throat> thing that thing C.S. Lewis complained about. You know, why is God always wanting me to praise Him? Why, why, why do I always have to give God glory? Because God wired mankind in such a way that when God is glorified, believing men and women rejoice. If you don't rejoice in the glory of God, you don't know God. I, I can say that with biblical authority. Because if you know God, the glory of God is your joy. It is your supreme joy. Matthew 13, I think it's 44. The man who found the treasure in the field. It was his supreme joy. So, it's like when we bury a, bury a loved one, right? Who is a Christian? Jesus is saying the same thing. Jesus says, I, I, I'm going to be with the Father. And so when we bury a loved one, it's hard for us, but praise God, it's great for them. Right? They wouldn't come back if they could. They wouldn't come back if they could. Once you see the exalted beauty of Jesus Christ, you would not come back for anything in this world. Not even your spouse or your kids. You wouldn't come back if you could. Once you step into the compelling beauty of the glory of God. So Jesus is he's teaching the guys and He's teaching us as well. And we need to spend just a minute on the last part of verse 28. <clears throat> the Father is greater than I. You know, there, there are people who will knock on your door. They're Jehovah's Witnesses. And they'll pull out this verse and they'll say, you see, the Father is greater than the Son. Well, you can refute them and never leave John 14. 
You can go to verse 7. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Very powerfully, verse 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. They are one in essence. They are one in essence and being. What is Jesus saying the Father is greater than I? He's simply saying, in my present state as a man. That's all he's saying. Don't listen to the heretics. You can lovingly, you know, refute them. Jesus is God. Before Abraham was, you tell me. I am. He's God. It's what the New Testament is about. Don't let anyone disparage the deity of Christ. They may simply be ignorant. Okay, you can inform them. Don't let anybody disparage the deity of Christ. Anyone who disparages the deity of Christ, it is demonic. And yes, that includes one of the major world religions. It, two of the major world religions. It is demonic. If you don't believe He's God, then, you know, go eat, drink, and be merry. But if you actually believe the Bible is the Word of God, there's no denying that He's God. It's unambiguous in the Bible. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. This is the beautiful thing about God. He's not, you know, God doesn't, you know, one of, the, one of the signposts that the Bible is the Word of God is all the fulfilled prophecy. And you hear people use the word prediction. God predicted. God doesn't predict. God ordains. Right? You understand? He's not predicting anything. He's already written it. It's already written. God does not predict. Ephesians chapter 1, He is working all Things, not some, not most, not many. He is working all things after the counsel of his will. There's a heresy in the modern church. It's called open theism. Some of you probably have been exposed to it. You may not be aware you've been exposed to it. It actually says, well, God is still learning. God doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow because you're a creature of free will. You have choice. He cannot know your free will choices. C.S. Lewis has a great response. Everyone who believes in God at all believes that He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. It's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to go and allow Himself to be arrested, scourged, and nailed to the cross. And what does the Bible tell us about that? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It is the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This is how big your God is. Don't let anyone disparage the sovereignty of God. <laughs> okay? You know, He's either God or He's not. He's either God or He's some pretend God or He's some pathetic wannabe God. But the biblical God is God. He ordains. He doesn't predict. And this is one thing Jesus is saying to them. When all of it comes true, you'll believe me more. Right? You'll believe me more. He told them that the religious leaders would 
seek to kill him, they did. He told them that they would put him to death, they did. He told them that uh, he would rise again, he did. He told them he would ascend into heaven, he did. He told them he would send them the Spirit, he did. Do you see how the sovereign reigning, ordaining God builds your faith? There's not one rogue molecule in the universe. I love this, right? Love it. There's not one molecule who doesn't stand at attention when God speaks. When Jehovah God speaks, every molecule in the universe stands at attention. It's just the truth, beloved. This is why you can be a radical Christian. That's why you don't have to be afraid. Your God is God. Every day. Every day. Okay. Verse 30. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing <clears throat> in me. One of my favorite Texans was here about 10 years ago. He always used to say the same thing in men's Bible study. He would always say, talk is cheap. You've heard this before, right? Talk is cheap. Jesus says, I'm not going to speak much longer with, with you. And I'm not saying what Jesus is saying is cheap. That's not what I'm saying. But you know what I'm saying. There's, there's the right time to talk. There's the right time to study. There's the right time to meditate. There's the right time to pray. You know, there's the right time to contemplate. There's the right time to fellowship and discuss. And then there's the right time to get up and do the Word. Amen? James chapter 1. Do it! As James says, do the word. Don't be like those who are who merely talk the the word and are deceived. So God intends for us to be students of the word, but he intends for us also to do the word. What's he talking about? The ruler of the world. He's talking about Satan. You guys know this if you know your Bible. Some translations say the prince of this world. Um, <clears throat> we've talked at length about Satan's limited authority in the world and through, as we made our way through the Gospel of John, and I won't belabor the point, we know that Adam and Eve surrendered dominion to him when they rebelled against God. Satan is the prince of or the ruler of or the lowercase g, God of the fallen world system, the system that hates and rejects God. Satan is the ruler of, the, of that system. And so that world system, it encompasses all the philosophies, ideologies, and false religions that in one way or another disparages or denies the person and work of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, Satan's coming after me, but he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. There's no sin in me. He has no basis for accusation. He's the great accuser. He has, there's nothing in me. He has nothing in me. Jesus is holy. Satan has nothing in him. Jesus is not subject to the wages of sin like you are and I am. If you've ever sinned, you will die, lest you be translated. 
the wages of sin is always death. It's never not death. So we will die. We will die. Just to, as a reminder, John 10, I, this is one of my favorite verses. I love when Jesus talks like this. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Do you hear the sovereignty of God here? I'm in charge. When I'm arrested, I'm in charge. When I'm spat upon, I'm in charge. When I'm, I'm scourged, I'm in charge. When I'm nailed to the tree, I'm in charge. When I give up my spirit, I'm in charge. When I'm thrown into the tomb, I'm in charge. How can you not worship a God like this? Beloved, don't let your Christianity be small. Don't let it be small. This is the coolest thing that's ever happened on the planet. All right. So verse 31, we'll finish. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So you know why the chorus in above all is wrong. Jesus says it. I do what I do that the world may know I love my Father. Yes, He loves His people. But he's not thinking about you above all, ever. It's never happened. It never will happen. It's not about you. It's about the Godhead. <laughs> it's about the Godhead. I do this that the world may know I love the Father. Thoreau said, men live quiet lives of quiet desperation. Why? Because they think it's about them. And they cannot find one small bit of satisfaction. There might be some temporal satisfaction, you know, some, some temporary satisfaction. Oh, my job's going well. My marriage is going well. Uh, my children are doing well. There, there, there can be, you know, there can be little bit of, little pieces of peace and satisfaction and fulfillment. But there is no ultimate satisfaction. So every man, every unbelieving man, lives a life of quiet desperation. All he's got left is me. It's all about me. Oh, if I just sin some more, I'll be happy. No, you'll never be happy. In sin, you will never be happy. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. You may get a moment's pleasure, but you'll get eternal death if you choose sin. Lives of quiet desperation, but not for the believer. We know it's not about us. It doesn't have to be about us. In fact, we rejoice that it's about a great God who loves me and bled out for me and indwells me. And it's coming back for me. And I will live forever with Him. John Piper says, bad theology hurts people. Yes! It does! <laughs> if you think it's all about you, that's not only bad anthropology, anthropology it's bad 
theology. God made you to be jazzed about him. And if you're not jazzed about him, you'll never be jazzed about anything. You'll be unjazzed for an eternity. God wired his, those he made in his image, his creatures, those he made in his image. To be thrilled and to treasure and to adore who he is and to find their deep, compelling satisfaction in the Lord. So, if you still think it's all about you, I know you haven't met Jesus Christ yet. You may be a church member somewhere, but I know you haven't met him yet if you think it's all about you. Because once you meet him, you happily confess, it ain't about me. It's about someone infinitely more wonderful than me. So if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, I invite you to come. Come and talk to me. I'll be happy to talk to you about that. Of course, we'll have to complete deliberations before Tuesday. Because I'm out of here. I'm going to go honor my wife. Um, as I'm commanded to do in the Word of God. If you don't know Jesus like this, I'm happy to speak with you. If you don't know Him as the sovereign reigning God, if you don't know Him as your deepest treasure and satisfaction, I'm happy to, to visit with you about, about that. And then for you believers, there may be some here tonight where there's some area of your life where Jesus is not the center. You're still the middle. And I, I challenge you to repent and believe. You're cutting yourself off from joy. Just give it to God. Just, just whatever it is, give it to God. You're no longer what your sin says you are. You are what God says you are. So, taking a step back, verse 21, I'll close like this, just because it's, I love this verse. This is the prerogative of a preacher. I get to say a verse as many times as I want. I love all of them, but I love this one a lot. John 14, 21. This is my exhortation to you for the rest of your life. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him. And I will disclose myself to him. Let me just say to you, unbeliever, or believer who's struggling with sin, if you'll take God up on this, you will never be sorry. You will never be sorry. What a great text. It's just going to get deeper and bigger and more powerful as we continue in the Gospel of John beginning September 2nd. And I've always wanted to close a sermon like this. Arise, let us go from here. These are the words of Jesus. But first, 
Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, what astonishing promises, as always. I think if we fully understood all that you're saying to us, we would die shouting. What a gracious, amazing God you are. Father, forgive us that we take so much for granted. Forgive us that we don't pick up your word. We don't listen to what you say. We don't make it a priority to incarnate your word. Forgive us, Father. We want to change. We don't want to be like the world. We don't want to be a nominal Christian. We know we have a few moments left on this planet. And Lord God, we want to be bold and courageous for the glory of Christ. So we cry out to You for Your help. We cry out to You for Your sanctification. We cry out to You for Your power and enabling. We thank You that You've made the promise. Father, help us to claim it. We love You. We praise You. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and uh, I'll close with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. God bless. Have a great rest of the summer. I'll be praying for you. God willing, you pray for us. And we'll meet again right here in this redeemed garage, God willing, September 2nd. Have a great summer.